Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Learn the technology and economics of Bitcoin by listening to interviews with Bitcoin's best and brightest. My guest today is a pseudonymous account known on Twitter as Plan B or 100 trillion. Now, he has been doing some really interesting graph graphing work and charting work. So I gave him a message and he was keen to come on. This is actually his first podcast episode. So a very special one here for you guys. Here is the interview. Plan B. I'm a fan of some of your graphing work that you've been doing on Twitter. You've been really setting it alight lately. So f- first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stefan. And uh, I'm glad to be on the show. Yeah. So look, I've seen... Obviously, I know you're a pseudonymous account, um, but I suppose let's just start with a little bit of background on you. And I think maybe we'll start with what's in a name? Why the Twitter handle at 100 trillion USD? Is this your theory for the longer term value of Bitcoin? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Plan B uh, actually refers to uh, uh, an alternative plan for quantitative easing and negative interest rates. So... um, Quantitative easing is the central bank strategy for uh, printing money and, and saving banks and the economy. Uh, but we don't know uh, how it ends. It's it's really uncharted waters. Um, and um, yeah, it, it, it might be handy to have a, a plan B. Uh, so that, that's where the plan B stands for. Um, the 100 trillion US dollar is a, a, refer, um, a reference to the uh, Zimbabwe 100 trillion dollar note um, during the uh, 2008 hyperinflation there. Uh, and, and since uh, quantitative easing, uh, printing of money, um, yeah, could lead to hyperinflation, I thought that would be a good uh, mark uh, to put up there as a reminder why, why Bitcoin is here. Nice. Very fitting. Very fitting. So obviously, I know you're a pseudonymous account, so I don't want you to dox yourself, but maybe just a little bit of background, whatever you're comfortable to share, perhaps just, you know, that you work in finance. Sure. No problem. Um, okay. I have a, a background in, uh, in, in, in legal and, and economics, and I work, uh, worked all my life in traditional finance, and mainly with a focus on quantitative uh, investing. Quant investing, so analyzing models um, and and investments, and also structured and uh, structured finance, so asset-backed securities, uh, residential mortgage-backed securities, and, and collateralized uh, debt obligations. So, in short, the 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 financial engineering part of uh, of an institution. And currently, I work for an uh, institutional investor as an investment manager. Where uh, yeah, we have a big balance sheet, multi-billion dollar balance sheet, and I analyze model and, and source uh, assets uh, for them. Um, yeah, the, the reason to be anonymous is, is uh, except of, apart from, from OPSEC reasons, maybe also uh, that I would like to focus on, on data and facts and logic, and it shouldn't matter who I am um, for, for that discussion. I think Satoshi gave uh, a perfect example here. Fantastic. Yeah, no, totally agreed with that. And so thanks for that. I mean, you've shared that you've got basically a relevant background to what you're doing in terms of charting and showing some of these different quantitative approaches on how we can think about what what is the longer term value on Bitcoin and so on. So let's talk a little bit with your general philosophy around 
you know, how do you think, what's your guiding Bitcoin investment thesis? Yeah. So actually, how I got into Bitcoin was was 2013, for five years into quantitative easing and zero interest rates, or at least uh, uh, low interest rates. So I was I was searching on the internet uh, for a QE hedge or arbitrage opportunities uh, regarding to quantitative easing, and that led me to a website uh, Zero Hedge. You might know it. <laughs> yes, classic. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic. Uh, and and there was this article about Bitcoin with a reference, of course, to the white paper. So I read the white paper in two thousand end of two thousand and thirteen, and I was hooked from the start. It's it's it. I think it's a real piece of art. Uh, it's deep. It's fundamental and yet simple. So um, I read all Satoshi's emails and posts after that from the the Nakamoto Institute, and followed the references that he made in the in the white paper and in the mails to uh, Adam Back, uh, uh, Hashcash, and to Nick Zabo's work. I, I think I read it all. Um, so. Um, it, it, it took a while for me to invest, though, in uh, in Bitcoin since, well, 2013, when I started reading the white paper, Bitcoin was $100. And when I uh, was finished reading, uh, two months later, it, it was $1,000. So uh, with the price uh, uh, going up 10x, I thought I might wait a little. Um, so it, I ended up waiting until 2015 to make the first investment. Wow, yeah, that's an interesting point because what normally happens, and I suppose this is probably because you have a bit more of a professional finance background, but many, you know, retail individuals who find out something, you know, it's going up, they might think, oh, quick, I've got to buy some now. But it sounds like you actually had a bit more of the patience to wait for a good buying opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Fear of missing out, the FOMO. I'm not immune to that feelings, by the way, but I, I learned to protect myself. That's that's true. Um, and and now we're at it. The um, the feeling of uh, the end of 2015. It feels very much like uh, today, after um, a, a, an all time high and 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 after a big bear market. So I'm I'm very excited about today. Fantastic. And then who are some of your influences in the Bitcoin world? I mean, you mentioned obviously Satoshi, Nick Zabo, Adam Back, any others? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe my, 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 my general view uh, that I got from Adam Back and, and, and Nick Zabo and, 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 and Satoshi also was that it's, um, it's all about the digital scarcity thing. Um, it, it, I see Bitcoin as the next logical evolution in money. It's just better money. And um, and money is important, not not because of the financial uh, part of it, but also because, like language, money um, is key for human cooperation. Uh, so better money leads to better cooperation, more trade, more specialization, better capital allocation, et cetera, et cetera. And in that sense, I think Bitcoin will bring, um, well, the next renaissance, if you will. Um, so I, I, I came to Bitcoin from the financial investment angle, but what, what drives me is this, this um, better money thing, and uh, I, I want to see Bitcoin succeed. Uh, there's one quote that I uh, used in the article uh, of Satoshi that I really like, and it's, imagine there was a base metal as scarce as gold, but can be transported over a communications channel. So that's where he directly refers to this digital scarcity as being very important. 
Um, and uh, the thing is, I, I see a lot of technical analysis uh, at the moment in Bitcoin, and that, that's really fun. But what I'm also very interested in is more fundamental econometric uh, models. Uh, that, that's also where my expertise can be of value, maybe. Um, and uh, yeah, a, lo a lot of my thinking is also uh, shaped by by people like Nash, John Nash, the uh, Nobel Prize winner, the, uh, with his uh, game theory. Uh, so he he has a very uh, clear vision of what money should be. It, it, we should we should look at money like a technology so it can be improved upon and 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 uh, sadly that doesn't that didn't happen very much uh, over the last uh, couple of decades and also hayek uh, of course the, the uh, nationalization of money uh, is something that from an economist investor perspective it, maybe it it it's still a bit weird that every country in the world has his own money printed on paper uh, and coins. So yeah, th those classics, and maybe I, I shouldn't forget uh, Milton Friedman, who basically predicted uh, the rise of Bitcoin in, in 1999 already. Um, so those are, are big influences, uh, the classics. And of course, uh, Sefirun Amus, uh, his book is, is, is a real classic. If, if if you're serious about Bitcoin, you should have read the, that book. I'm sure you did. Yeah, so I think for me, a big influence is the Austrian school. And uh, I think one concept that Safedean has really popularized within the Bitcoin world is this whole idea of looking at things through the concept or through a prism of stock to flow ratio. And I noticed that from your your charting and your analysis that you have actually incorporated some of that into your own work. So can you tell us a little bit about how you've done that and why you've done that? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so so going from um, digital scarcity to, uh, to stock to flow, maybe there's one step uh, in between, um, and that's the unforgeable uh, costliness, uh, which is the definition that Nick Zabo gave for scarcity. Uh, so it refers also to the, the costliness of production, like gold. It's, it's very costly to produce gold. And that, that is a very useful um, definition uh, because it, it feeds directly into the importance of uh, a fixed supply or, or at least a cap on the money supply, which of course Bitcoin has, but also things like proof of work uh, and hash rate, which make... Um, Bitcoin production uh, costly, uh, and also things like decentralization, because um, if you can influence the money supply or change it, then yeah, well, you can ask yourself if it's if it's if it's scarce. Uh, so what Safetine did, um, and it was actually the first time I read it, was um, to make it to make scarcity quantifiable. And uh, since I, I'd like to model things, um, I had to quantify scarcity. And he really explained this stock-to-value, uh, stock-to-flow um, ratio very good. Um, and maybe I'll explain it a little bit. Um, sure, definitely. Sure. So, so stock is the uh, the current stockpiles of something. Uh, gold could be Bitcoin, uh, could be anything. The, the current above-ground uh, uh, stockpiles. And flow is the yearly production 
Now, if you divide stock by flow, you get the stock to flow ratio. And you could also do it the other way around. Um, so you could divide the yearly production, the flow, uh, by the stock. And then you get the uh, money supply rate or in Bitcoin, they sometimes call it um, the inflation rate. So um, stock to flow ratio is nothing less than uh, or nothing more than one divided by the inflation rate. And uh, if we look at some numbers, uh, gold, for example, has a stock of 185,000 tons and a yearly flow of 3,000 tons per year. So the stock to flow is 62, which is really high. Um, and silver has a stock of 550,000 tons and a flow of 25,000 tons. So it has a stock to flow ratio of 22. Um, what, what Safedine also uh, makes very clear is that, that other commodities like um, copper or zinc or well, I use the examples of palladium and platinum. Uh, they all have stock to flow values of uh, of around zero, less than zero or slightly above zero. But it it's actually very rare that a uh, asset or commodity can go beyond the stock to flow ratio of one. And um, and if it does, it 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 gets this monetary aspect. Uh, so it. Uh, in fact, only gold and silver have 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 uh, stock to flow ratios above one, twenty two and sixty two, and they are really monetary um, assets. So they have value because because of their high stock to flow ratio, their their scarcity. Whereas um, all the other commodities also can have value. For example, um, platinum and, and palladium are used in uh, catalyzers for exhaust gases in, in cars. But uh, that that's a value derived from utility. And I think that's 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 when the, the part that uh, Safedin really uh, made clear to me uh, that, that there is a, a split between monetary assets with a high stock-to-flow ratio and commodities which, which have a utility value but a stock-to-flow ratio of one. Or less, and and then if we if you look at Bitcoin, where it fits into those two categories, it has a stock of seventeen and a half million uh, bitcoins at the moment, and a flow of around 0.7 million bitcoins per year. So it has a stock to flow value of twenty five. That puts it right into the monetary um, category, um, and that's that's very interesting. And that's also when when it struck to me that the during the all-time high in uh, November December 2017 the value the total value of Bitcoin uh, market was around or or similar or or even slightly above the total silver market and that's that's that was too much of a coincidence for me that the uh, stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin and silver is almost identical and the market value so that's where I got the idea to use stock to flow as a input for a model to uh, to model Bitcoin's uh, value. Fantastic! Yeah, I think it's a really great insight, and perhaps a like I think it's a novel way of trying to model out 
the actual impact of this stock to flow ratio. And as you were saying, uh, these goods that have a high stock to flow ratio above one, they tend to have some level of monetary premium. And so do you want to maybe tell us, just talk us through a little bit around what sort of numbers that the chart is showing. Uh, oh, sp- oh, sorry, one other thing before we get, take one step back. Before we get to that, we should just talk a little bit about how Bitcoin right now, as you mentioned, has that stock to flow ratio around 22, similar to silver. What what will be the future stock to flow ratio, say 10, 20, 30 years out? Yeah, it's uh, that's a good point. The um, what, what you uh, notice is that the halvings become very important. So stock to flow ratio increases every day a little bit. But then once every 210,000 uh, blocks, uh, there is a halving um, of the uh, number of uh, Bitcoins that's uh, created in a block every 10 minutes. So that will that will double the uh, stock-to-flow ratio. And the halvings are, well, around every four years. Uh, next halving is May 2020. Um, so that will, that will double the stock-to-flow ratio to 50 very close to the stock-to-flow ratio of gold, 62. And um, four years later, in 2024, it will double again to um, around or, or a little above 100. And then in 28, it goes to 200 and so on and so on. So that 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 really puts us into uh, uncharted uh, waters uh, after next um, uh, 2020 uh, uh, halving, which is very exciting, I think. Fantastic. And now maybe just obviously this is an audio only podcast. Uh, I'll advise the listeners, I'll put the link in the show notes to uh, plan B to your article and to your graphs, but maybe just talk to some of the key uh, points on the graph just to try and help uh, articulate that for the listeners. Yeah. Shall I do the, uh, the stock to flow chart first? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's do stock to flow. Yeah, the stock-to-flow chart is the the chart that that shows you uh, stock-to-flow on the x-axis uh, and market value on the on the y-axis. So it's a scatter plot, um, and it has 111 data points in there um, of all the monthly uh, market values and, and stock-to-flow values of Bitcoin for the last uh, uh, nine years. Um, and what you see oh, when I first plotted that uh, made that plot. It was uh, I saw nothing um, because I, I didn't have log scales on, and and you really should uh, should look at these charts in in, in log scale or, or use log uh, logarithmic values, because if you don't, you, you don't see the uh, the long term trends. So if you uh, look at log scale to stock to flow and market value, you see this perfect straight line. It it was when I saw it first. It was really like whoa, um, um, perfect straight line from the uh, bottom left to the uh, top right, from low stock to flow and low market value, creeping up to high stock to flow, current stock to flow of twenty five, and uh, current market value of around what is it now eighty ninety uh, billions. Um, so what I also did was put a color overlay. On that, uh, on the data points, and the color is um, um, indicates the months until the next halving. So right now we're about thirteen months until the next halving in May, twenty twenty, 
uh, and it has the color green. And as the closer we get to the next halving, the, the color turns blue. And then at the halving, after the halving, it turns red. Like, okay, uh, a, a, a lot of months until the next uh, halving. And what that yep. does is in the chart, it, it sort of groups all the, uh, all the data points into three distinct areas that uh, the first area is is before the first halving. So then there was never a halving before. Um, that's a period until uh, November 2012. Um, and there's a third por- um, a, a second period after the first halving and a third period where we in where we are in uh, right now after the second halving. Um, so I think that's basically what you see in that chart. Yeah, and perhaps talk to some of the uh, where the price would be at theoretically, uh, let's say now, and then after the next halving. Yeah, so right now the model indicates a value of a little above six thousand uh, US dollars, and that uh, I get that question a lot. How how much did the model uh, indicate at last uh, all time high? Now. In, in November, December 2017, at the all-time high, it had a model price of 37,000 US dollars. So the real market price was really too high at the, with hindsight. Um, and if we go into the future, next halving, May 2020, the model value jumps to 50,000 um, US dollars per Bitcoin. Um, and of course, the all-time high could be uh, 3 to 10x higher than that. Um, at least that's that's what the price was last two halvings. So it's right. it, it's it's a rather conservative uh, value. Um, and that number, by the way, is, is going to increase, of course, uh, next halving. So the halving in 2024, when the stock to flow will be 100. Uh, Bitcoin will be priced at around uh, 400 thousand dollars each um so yeah it 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 goes up really fast (laughs) right and i guess the other factor here to think about is that well in practice what happens is it's it markets can swing or kind of over what's the what's the best way to say it can kind of go it can overshoot and then undershoot can you discuss that a little bit yeah, absolutely, and and maybe when we talk later about about the model itself, uh, you'll see it it doesn't um, um, have a, have an accuracy of hundred of one hundred percent, of course, because it's it's a model. So all those um, FOMO uh, actions and bull markets and bear uh, and, and, and fear, it's all not in there. It's it's uh, and you see that in the chart as well. So so the model price is is very simple based on stock to flow. Uh, but the actual market, of course, where 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 fear and greed are are playing out, uh, yeah, it it it, so it it goes, uh, it overshoots and undershoots, and usually what you see, well, usually, I mean, the last two times, is that um, the market overshoots three to ten x, the model value, but undershoots fifty uh, percent maximum, so. Um, that that's one of the reasons why I thought, okay, if we're at uh, a model value today of a little above six thousand dollars, fifty percent of that three thousand should be sort of the minimum um, 
the bottom of uh, of current bear market. But uh, yeah, that's 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 how I see it. So essentially, what you're saying then is using the model we think the bottom would be around three thousand. i'm not normally a big ta price guy but um i am curious about you know all of this stock to flow and harvesting stuff um and then i suppose what you're suggesting then is that if the model can overshoot uh on the next kind of assuming there is a next bull run uh it would go so just looking at your chart here so the bitcoin and number of blocks per month yeah yeah, so you mentioned the $55,000 kind of value. So essentially, if it does overshoot, it can go to like over 100 and then crash down to sort of whatever half half of 55, so like 27,000, something like that. So theoretically, that's kind of at this point, that's what your model is predicting. Yeah, exactly. And and to be clear, the, so the, the prediction really is the, the 50,000 for next halving. Uh, but we know from the errors in the past that, yeah, the, the scenario you uh, described, that's that's a, a very possible scenario, scenario, and that's that's how I see it as well. Right. Yeah. And I suppose the other big thing, obviously, I have to raise this and ask this question. Obviously, everyone discusses this concept of, oh, is the halvening priced in? And I think speaking, this does speak to where you stand on other debates for example the efficient market hypothesis so as an austrian and even safety in himself i think has made a similar comment on this saying look knowledge is not given to everyone equally and so we should not anticipate that the you know what what, what might be called the strong form of the emh or even perhaps the weak form of the emh is not a good way to think about things but then there are others from say the chicago school and other schools of thought that may believe in that more so where do you side on that yeah that's a very interesting point and it, it's um actually that's that's one of my first charts uh the the halving chart um with the color overlay uh, and it shows the bitcoin price with the months to the next halving and and, and you can clearly see from that chart uh that the um, the halving is not priced in, or at least was not priced in uh, last two times. Uh, so, so my best guess would be it is not priced in now. Uh, next halving, uh, May twenty twenty. But yeah, the the efficient market uh, hypothesis. Um, uh, it, it's kind of weird. So it should be priced in, of course. Um, and and. In fact, I'm a big believer of the efficient market uh, hypothesis, or at least it should be used as a first starting point uh, for most people that don't have inside information or specialized knowledge or, or a big trading room available. Um, the efficient market price is the best price there is, and they can rely on that. And that's especially true if markets are really big and, and, and liquid and efficient. Uh, and and I think that's that's true for Bitcoin market in a sense. So it's it's like a eighty billion dollar market. Um, it always surprises me how well the uh, uh, foreign exchange differences are arbitraged away immediately. So there's there's really not much opportunity to um, to to make use of the uh, foreign exchange dif- uh, differences with with Bitcoin and. So it must be, yeah. Well, at least a little uh, uh, efficient. So, so if it's efficient, it's really weird that that the pricing is not uh, priced in. 
so that can mean um, a couple of things. It can mean that that um, the halving effect isn't there. Uh, I believe it is, but um, it, it could be that I'm wrong. Um, it could also be that that uh, a lot of new people um, who are not in the market yet and, and who don't know about the halving uh, are going to learn about the halving. And in that sense, you have a an enormous uh, information asymmetry uh, at the moment. Um, I, I, I think it's very well possible that is the case here. Yeah, it's an interesting way to think of it. And, uh, you know, I obviously being more of, on the Austrian side, I, I I disagree with the idea of the EMH. And I think it sort of, it takes things a little bit too far. Whereas from an Austrian economics point of view, we might view, as Mises said, the market is a process and people are continually you know, trying to, um, you know, serve consumer, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to serve consumer demands, or if you're a speculator, you're trying to, you know, correctly speculate. And um, it may just be that, you know, right now, Bitcoin is really only very, it's very poorly understood. Whereas kind of assuming if everyone understood Bitcoin, you know, from day dot, from day one, everyone knew the exact supply curve or not the exact supply curve, but good enough that they could predict it out over the next, you know, 100 years or whatever. Um, and then that they should take the exact, you know, actions now to try and best speculate or profit based on that. Um, whereas perhaps in the foreign exchange example, maybe it's a little bit easier to kind of do that now for the profit straight away. Whereas perhaps uh, if you were to try and apply that with Bitcoin, well, What's the way to profit from that? Well, you've got to buy it now. And does everyone have money available now to buy into that? Yeah, yeah, and I agree with the Austrian view as well. I think if 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 nobody tries to uh, arbitrage those differences away, uh, they would be still here. So the so somebody has to try, and there will always be um, uh, profit opportunities that that deviate from the efficient markets and should and you can yeah you should try to trade it but but only if you have a niche a special edge over others uh in terms of information or knowledge etc right uh, there, there's one big example that 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 i i kept in my head since my um university uh, time and it's that um option model that black and Scholes have inv mm, invented yeah. so it's 1973 i thought it was uh they had this classic paper they received the nobel prize uh, for it uh, where they said, okay, there is a, an arbitrage uh, relation between an option on the on the one hand and a basket of uh, the underlying asset and a uh, risk-free asset on the other side. And, uh, well, they're, they're the same price. So if there is a difference between them, uh, you can arbitrage it. So they, they put that out in the paper. It was out in the open. But, well, I think people had to learn it. People had to uh, digest it and believe it. Because uh, it wasn't used, and you didn't see prices move right away, so those um, uh, were excellent opportunities for uh, both gentlemen to uh, to trade. I think they did it for about ten years without uh, the uh, the opportunity going away. So they become uh, they became millionaires trading their publicly uh, available model. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I'm sure as a finance professional, I'm sure you have uh, 
heard or you've probably read Nassim Taleb, right? And I'm sure you probably have, do you have any thoughts on, because obviously Nassim Taleb is quite skeptical of the Black Skulls model and suggests that many traders in the real world don't even use that model. Uh, so I wonder what your thoughts are there. Yeah, he's one of my heroes. Um, uh, yeah, I read all of his books. He's, uh, um, yeah, he, he's a great quant, but also an investor. So he has skin in the game, even called his one of his books, of course, uh, Skin in the Game. Uh, so no, he, he's very good. He's, he's like, uh, yeah, a very good statistician, a mathematician. Um, so uh, I, I understand what he says about the Black and Scholes model because it's it's uh, it assumes normality, which which is not present in the in the in the current markets. Uh, and and uh, there is black swans. There is uh, uh, a different uh, a behavior of market prices, and and you should model that with different. Uh, 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 formulas and, and models. It, in fact, uh, this is, and, and we probably get later to that, this is why I think it's so very interesting that uh, the model I found, uh, that, that that simple linear regression can be rewritten as a power law uh, with a fractal dimension uh, that exactly uh, has all those those uh, dimensions, um, asymmetric dimensions, and and, and properties that uh, that Taleb describes and, and loves so much. Yeah, exactly. I guess just to my mind, I'm obviously not uh, as much deeply steeped into you know doing statistical analysis, but perhaps Nassim Taleb might view that Black Scholes model as, I guess, in Talebian terms, he might say these people are thinking it's you know, standard world when actually we live in extremistan. And maybe these people who are profiting from that are, you know, the proverbial picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but you can you can speculate with uh, options, so the Black and Scholes uh, model, and you can hedge with uh, with options. And I think if you... Yeah. If you hedge with options, you're you just buy a contract and and you pay the price that that that's in the market and you you're hedged. So that's that's one way. The other way is 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 betting on it and uh, um, and and that's where you can really go wrong with the Black and Scholes model. Uh, and 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 I think uh, yeah, the more the, the 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 three sigma events or, or or ten sigma events are much more frequent than uh, than the normal distribution. Uh, assumes so so yeah uh, Taleb really has a point there um, but I also think that it it works in a lot of cases and and this is uh, what what um, what Taleb does is is the next step so it's it's a little bit like saying uh, okay uh, uh, Einstein's relative relative um, relativity theory well it's nice but uh, we have quantum mechanics and that's that's uh, that's much better yeah it is but at the time uh, einstein uh, was also very very uh, close to the truth so so it's a i think it's a logical next step and and certainly uh, must read for uh, for bitcoin quants yeah really interesting stuff and i think now the other the other big obvious question that i'm sure every listener wants to understand here is the question around sample size right so Obviously, we're very early in Bitcoin. It's only been 10 years and we've only seen two halvings. So do you have any uh, hesitations about the fact that we've only seen two halvings and can we really predict 
further out based on only a sample, uh, quote unquote, sample size of two? Yeah, good question. And I, indeed, I get I get it a lot. Um, maybe one step back. Um, if if we if we go to the model, um, so uh, coming from this 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 um, chart, this scatter plot that we just uh, described, uh, I wanted to make a a more formal model to see if there is any significant statistical relationship. And um, since that was a straight line visible, I thought, well, okay, let's let's do a simple linear regression. And and that confirmed what could already be seen with the uh, naked eye that there was a statistical significant relationship. So FMP values were very, very low and it had a nice 95% uh, R squared. So yeah, that, that gives some, some, some confidence in the model. Um, and, uh, and of course, I also added gold and silver in there, which were totally unrelated markets, but uh, they turned out to be right on the, on this model line. And uh, that, yeah, that to me gives some extra uh, confidence in the model. Um, about the halving and, and um, that there's only two halvings, I think that, that that's a good point in, in, and, and that's why I call it a um, hypothesis. So we're going to see if it's right in, in, in May 2020 or, or actually after May 2020 halving. Um, so it, it can be wrong. On the other hand, um, if we look at, uh, um, at the halvings, it, if it, I use like 111 data points, so not, not only two data points, and uh, the stock to flow also rises in between the halvings. So not only at the halvings, then it makes a really ju a big jump, but it also rises in between the halvings. So for example, if we take the first four years, um, be before there was even a, a halving, uh, and so, so the, the period until November 2012, uh, Bitcoin uh, stock to flow um, increased in that period from below one to uh, three, four-ish um, around the uh, the halving, and if I would have made that model, the linear regression only in in the first four years, it would have been exactly the same. So it, I could have predicted the next halving value and the second halving value with only the first four years of data, um, and. So yeah, that that gives me some confidence um, in the model, uh, and also if you look at this this periods, also between the first and the second halving, two thousand twelve, two thousand sixteen, uh, it starts in the bottom left, and it ends in the top right, and that's true for the first four years, the second four years, and the current period we are in. So, so. Yeah, I think it's it's not only the two halvings and, and that we only have two data points. Uh, but I agree that a third and even a fourth halving would, would add uh, credibility to the model. Excellent point. So I guess I'll just summarize that then and paraphrase it in my own thoughts. And so essentially, it's not just the two halvings, but it's also the movement in between those halvings. And in that case, we're using month by month data. And I suppose the other concept that you mentioned there is that Perhaps we can draw some level of confidence from the ability to backtest the model, or in this case, give the model, in a sense, 
data only up to, say, the first four years of Bitcoin and then try to predict what the model would have predicted uh, the value in the next, you know, halving and, and, the, and the time to now. And what you're saying there is that essentially the model could have given us, even if you only, so to speak, fed it, you know, the first few years of data, it could then have uh, given us similar values to what we have seen. Is that a fair summary of what you said? Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. And and, and I agree that backtesting is always very useful and that um, well, the limited period is... Uh, uh, so the only 10 years of data for Bitcoin is a bit of a, uh, a nuisance here. But uh, yeah, it, like you described, it's perfectly uh, right. Excellent. Okay. Well, and then I think the other thing that can come up, I think, uh, I'm not sure, I've forgotten what book I read this from, but I I think uh, I was very moved by Burton Malkiel's book, A Random Walk Down Wall, Down Wall Street. And and I think others such as perhaps uh, John Bogle, I can't remember exactly who, but they have spoken about this idea of potentially what's called curve overfitting, right? So uh, do you have any thoughts around are we just sort of, or even, you know, Nassim Taleb, again, this idea of fooled by randomness, are we sort of seeing a pattern in the data that looks like a pattern but actually is not a pattern? What do you think about that? Yeah, good point. It could be. Uh, by the way, that's an excellent book. I must read the uh, Malkiel's uh, Random Walk Down Wall Street, a real classic, uh, with lots of stuff about efficient market uh, hypothesis. Uh, yeah, the point curve overfitting, um, I'm very keen to curve overfitting because um, I have a little background in, in artificial intelligence uh, as well. And, and there it was especially a big problem because uh, those those algorithms can fit everything, uh, also noise, uh, and you only want to model the signal, of course. Uh, I do, I do think with with a linear regression overfitting is yeah um, not 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 uh, such a big problem, especially since uh, in this model we use only uh, one input vari variable, stock to flow, and there's only two parameters, so it's yeah, if, if you go to nonlinear functions with uh, multivariate analysis and uh, multiple input uh, inputs, that becomes a bigger problem. Uh, however, there there might be other problems, and and that's also why I put the article out. So I'd like to discuss the uh, all the comments and especially the critiques and and reviews because uh, I I'd like to know if, if I'm wrong because. Uh, because of the skin in the game, um, so one of the things that that could be an issue is is the data itself, uh, the price data uh, before July two thousand and ten, is really iffy. It's uh, there were not very much exchanges before the July two thousand and ten, so I think it's it's fair to call all 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 that data data archaeology and. Um, to give an example, um, there, there's this famous example of uh, somebody paying ten thousand bitcoins for forty-one dollars of pizza. So that gives you a price uh, a dot. Uh, and and there is also a very early, I think it's my earliest uh, data point, uh, thirteen hundred and nine bitcoins for one dollar of electricity. Uh, yeah, so so. That's not really an exchange price, but a more like a case-by-case -case price that's, that's found by data archaeology. 
And and it's important because those data points, those early data points with the very low stock to flow and very low market values, they have a, a they have an influence on the R squared, on the fitness of the function, of course. I think it will probably cost you a couple of percentage points uh, R squared if you leave them out and start modeling from July 2010. Oh, right. So your R squared would not be 95% if you take those, say, those two data points out, it would be lower? Yeah, like 92 or something. Oh, okay, okay. And I suppose just in terms of for those people who are not as familiar with statistical modeling, what does it mean to have a 95% R squared? Yeah, it 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 means that the uh, chance that the um, the value is is uh, the so the change in value is caused by by random events or so other events than your input variable is very low. So it's 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 really it, it it's really the input that that correlates with the uh, the output variable and the the chance of random uh, other variables uh, influencing that same output are uh, very low, close to zero in this case. Mm. 95% is really, really high. Um, Okay, and I think another interesting kind of meme that's been going around in the community, and this is something that went around particularly in 2017, was this whole, oh, institutional money is coming. And that was, you know, that was one of the, I guess, ideas rapidly flying around and and on the counter side of that some you know detractors might say oh look so much of the volume is fake and maybe tether is fractional reserving and that that is what's driving the volume and the price rise do you have any thoughts on that idea that you know oh the volume is fake and tether is driving it yeah that's an interesting question especially because i'm an institutional investor uh yeah i I think some institutional investors uh, really get it on 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 sea level um like fidelity, uh, I think that's a very good example. But actually, I don't see much banks and insurance companies that that uh, have to deal with a central bank capital uh, regime like like Basel or, or Solvency. Uh, I don't see them invest in Bitcoin very soon. Um, so if you if if you look beyond the sea level uh, at at banks and insurance companies and institutional investors, say at the uh, a dealing room uh, where the traders are, or or the quants, or or even the young employees, then I see a lot of interest and a lot of buying too. So um, yeah, I, I think the institutional money is coming. Meme, yes, I uh, I hope I, I hope uh, we do, and I'm also personally working towards that. I'd like to be. A bridge between Bitcoin and the traditional institutional money, but we have a long way to go. And uh, yeah, it's 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 funny because I, I also get the question a lot. Like, okay, you're predicting a one to ten trillion dollar uh, Bitcoin market. That that's an enormous amount of money. Uh, where where does that come from? And uh, and indeed, it it will. It will not take one trillion or, or a couple of trillion, but just a percentage of that, but but still a lot of money. And my answer to that question is: I think it's the uh, first. It's the first the 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 silver and gold market, uh, where where money is coming from, and and people selling silver, especially uh, and, and and gold more, um, if we approach the halving, uh, and they will they will 
rotate to uh, to Bitcoin a bit. Uh, and the second source of of new money would be countries with negative interest uh, rates, like Europe and Japan at the moment, and U.S. Uh, soon, I guess. Um, it must be really hard for people in the U.S. to imagine what it's like in Europe and Japan uh, to have zero interest on your balance on, on your saving accounts and and sometimes negative interest on your mortgage. So I have friends that have a negative interest mortgage rate. So they get money for living in their house. It's it's really a weird world. And um, if you get zero percent on your saving accounts or even have to pay in the future, who knows? Uh, it makes you do different things with uh, with your money. And, and you might be looking for a plan B and uh, invest some of it in, uh, in Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think it's around this idea that um, Bitcoin may displace other markets and other, well, were premi- previously things that held some level of what we might call a monetary premium. Uh, so I was interested just to, to get some of your thoughts in terms of overall finance and investing philosophy. So um, an example would be uh, where do you where do you sort of sit on the active or passive debate? Yeah, um, a bit in line with the uh, efficient market and the uh, random walk down Wall Street uh, book you mentioned from uh, Mark Yeah, I think it's very hard to uh, outperform the market uh, and generate alpha. So unless you have a real edge. Uh, some info that others have, some some model, some some um, yeah, a big dealing room, and access to markets that that others don't have. I would stick to passive. Uh, there's overwhelming evidence uh, that that's best for like eighty percent of the people. Uh, and also with Bitcoin, you can do uh, technical analysis and trade a lot for fun. Um, try to time uh, tops and bottoms. Uh, uh, I personally prefer averaging in, hodling, and and um, as an investment uh, strategy. Plan B. You're a man after my own heart. I'm very similar. I'm very much about um, passive, just long term, like buy and hold. And I suppose that then brings also the question around allocation, right? So, what sort of Bitcoin allocations do you think might be reasonable? depending on what sort of person you are, whether you're just like a retail individual, whether you're a high net worth individual, or whether you're a fund. Do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, that's that's a difficult question. It, it, um, it depends, of course, on the specific case. And and, and let me uh, warn that this is not financial advice, of course, which, which is true for everything, all the ideas I have. But um, yeah, that, that's really difficult to answer. Um, maybe some general guidelines is never invest more in Bitcoin or any other asset then you're willing to lose, uh, especially true for Bitcoin because, well, there is a, I think it's small probability, but there is a probability that it goes to zero. So I think you should be willing or prepared to lose it all. Uh, so don't do it with your pension funds or don't do it with money you need for something else. Uh, do it with, yeah, some money you have uh, laying around doing nothing. Uh, and also, never invest in something that you don't understand. So do your research first and, and do it really well because there's lots of scammers out there. It's really easy to get caught into some shitcoin and lose all your money. So do it really good. Read the white paper. Follow the, the white rabbit. The trail is very clear. Uh, but do your research. And uh, okay, if, if you're then still uh, want to buy Bitcoin, 
um, say say you're a millionaire and want to have some fun and take some some high risk with a small stake, I would say one or one to ten bitcoins uh, buys you a lot of fun uh, for the years to come. Um, for institutions, it's a different game because um, they have obligations uh, to their clients and, and, and liabilities and, and regulators. So what I would do is at least research the best performing asset of the last 10 years and do it well. So study Bitcoin and, and not blockchain uh, and understand it deeply. Why is it here? Why is it still here? Um, and those kind of stuff. So yeah, some very common sense tips there. And I think the other thing um, that people face once they have been in Bitcoin for some time is this question of rebalancing, right? So many people come up with a certain allocation. So for argument's sake, they might normally do 60-40 stocks and bonds, but let's say they do that, but say they put maybe 1% Bitcoin, right? They just want to have a small allocation in Bitcoin. But then let's say there's a big bull market and now that Bitcoin allocation is a lot more than 1%. So do you have any thoughts on whether people should rebalance or on the other hand, if they view it like a once in a lifetime opportunity, would they just say not rebalance that uh, Bitcoin aspect or component of their portfolio? Yeah, that, that's a complex question. Uh, let me say two things about it. Um, I view Bitcoin also as the biggest asymmetrical bet of our time. So um, yeah, if you see it that way, if you did your research and if you have some money around, um, go for it and have some fun. But uh, I think I also think even if it's the biggest biggest uh, opportunity in a lifetime, that there is nothing wrong with taking some chips off the table uh, after it goes ten to hundred x. Uh, I mean, you have to live as well, and and so to take a couple of percent off, do some nice things, and and make sure you survive the next bear market. That that kind of stuff. Uh, I sure did in, to, in in the beginning of 2018. So that was after the all-time high. Um, uh, I didn't sell the top, of course, because uh, that's that's really hard to do, almost impossible. But if something goes 10 to 100x, make sure you have some some fun with it. And um, I can tell you, I'll I'll do it again if if Bitcoin indeed overshoots the uh, stock-to-flow model price. After next halving, so the fifty thousands, it, it overshoots maybe to a hundred, or or maybe two hundred thousand dollars. I'll take some chips off the table. Uh, why not? Um, so 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 that's that's one point. The other point is if you if you look at it from a quant uh, investor perspective, this is a a very technical thing. Um, uh, if there is um, asymmetrical. Um, Distributions, so uh, 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 a power distribution, which, which I think is there, then it really makes sense to bet with small um, uh, sizes. So not put hundred percent of your money in, but put, for example, one or ten percent of your money in, and then um, it, your your return will be will be very much smoothed over time and still very high, not as high and also not as low as if you go all in, but it would it would bring your return very close to the uh, um, 
the highest return possible in that kind of situation. A bit like Delta hatching uh, options. I, I really like the insight there. And it reminds me of another book I've read by, I believe his name is Will or William Bernstein. And I think he, he makes a similar comment there that some people you know, for example, during the dot-com bubble that they were sitting on fortunes of maybe 10 million or 15 million and they didn't even think to, you know, as he says, when once you've already won the game, you should take some chips off the table, right? So some of these people who got really caught up in that hubris of, oh, I've got, you know, 10 million worth of dot-com stocks in the, you know, in the early 2000s when the dot-com bubble was going and they thought, oh, look, I'll just keep holding and I'll become a hundred millionaire or a billionaire or whatever. Um, and they didn't think to kind of realize, well, hey, what if I actually took some chips off the table? Even if you took out one or two million of that, that's still a life-changing amount of money. Exactly. So, yeah, look, are there any other kind of comments you have around finance and investing philosophy? One, one thing, um, what really interests me is, is the, uh, the arbitrage opportunity that might be there. So suppose that the quantitative easing um, experiment that we're in right now, that it goes south and that it, it doesn't end well, then you should have a plan B. Uh, there should be something after it. And, uh, but at least I think there should be some arbitrage possible. Uh, so maybe with negative interests, there will be an opportunity or a model like the Black and Scholes model that that can earn you a risk-free return. I, I, I don't think um, it's impossible that that thing is out there. And um, maybe it sounds like the holy grail, but I think that's the next, in my mind, that's, that's, that's how the next step in Bitcoin's growth, not so much the, uh, the uh, adoption of, of customers paying for coffee or, or shops uh, where you can pay with Bitcoin, but, but really a financial arbitrage that is found between the fiat world where you can uh, um, borrow money against negative interest rates and the Bitcoin world where you have a super hard asset that will be, um, well, harder than gold and harder than anything we've seen ever before. Uh, there must be, my feeling tells me there must be an arbitrage opportunity there. And I'm working day and night to uh, to find that one. Yeah, interesting thoughts, hey, yeah. I think people can lose their heads uh, when, they, when, when it comes as well. So during the bull market, people just go crazy and they don't really... The random person who doesn't really know about that, you know, Bitcoin and the, the whole cryptocurrency market, they're not paying attention to the, the cooler heads in the room uh, and they are kind of all looking for the best way to gamble and get a 10x or a 100x. So exactly. that's something to watch out for. Exactly. In, in, in that respect, if uh, I really like the movie, The Big Short, that uh, you probably saw that one. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's a must-see. It, it, it will show you that uh, during the last uh, global financial crisis, uh, uh, it, some people saw it coming and, and, and had their plan B ready. And, and I think it's, it's similar to, uh, to the times we live in today. Yeah, it is a great movie. I do recommend it. Um, so look, plan B, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for. So if you have any last things you'd like to say just as a closing comment or otherwise, just tell the listeners where they can find you and follow you. Yeah, sure. Um, you can find me on, on Twitter 
plan B at 100 trillion US dollars. Um, and, and please uh, tweet me, DM me uh, with all your comments and questions and critiques. Um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to discussion. That's why I am on Twitter. And that's also uh, maybe good to know, I put all the data, all the functions, all the Python scripts uh, on GitHub. So if people want to want to check for themselves um, or test it or, or improve on the model, please do so. Um, I, I, we're also working uh, with some of my followers at the moment to uh, to improve the model. So yeah, please um, reach out and uh, let's keep the discussion going. Excellent. Well, look, it, thank you very much for coming on. It has been a really fascinating discussion. I'm sure the listeners will enjoy when I release this one. So thank you again for coming on the show, Plan B. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. Some discussion around stock to flow ratio and trying to model that into what that means for the price of the asset. So let me know your thoughts on whether you think we can model this sort of thing or is it more, do you fall more on the side of thinking it's like data mining, curve overfitting, etc. Also just wanted to give a shout out to Michael Ferguson, the organizer of the London Bitcoin Devs Meetup. He left me a fantastic review. He left me five stars and wrote Highest Signal Bitcoin Podcast, a brilliant podcast. Stefan is great at bridging the gap between highly technical, experienced guests and general audiences. If you want to learn about Bitcoin tech, this is the podcast for you. Thank you, Michael. That's really kind of you. And guys, I'd really appreciate it. If you want to help me out, you can just give me a review on Apple iTunes or any other podcast app. You can give me a review. I'd really appreciate that. Otherwise, you can find the show notes on my website, stefanlevera.com. This is episode 67. Thanks, guys, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.